you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Righty, so we're <clears throat> reading 1 Kings 18, the whole chapter. So let's go. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold... Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognised him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give me your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth." Has it not been told to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all, the Israel, all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, if Baal then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. 
Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that he had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, 
say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Wasn't that read well? Uh, Let's pray and then let's uh, look at this chapter together. Gracious Father, the undisputed God and ruler of this world, we pray that as we again look at the narrative of Elijah and we see the extraordinary deeds that you perform through him, We again pray that we would learn the lessons you would have us learn, that we would know them, that we would feel them, and that we would want to live them out for the sake of Christ. And we pray this in and through his name. Amen. Well, as we continue on in the chaos and the comfort that is the man Elijah, uh, we're moving on from the battle of the gods to the battle of the voices. But before we look at the Battle of the Voices, uh, I'd love to spend a little bit more time telling you about triathlons. Uh, That's my thing, and I did get to do one last weekend. Uh, It was a beautiful uh, triathlon. It was known as a 70.3. Does anyone have any idea what that means, 70.3? Yeah, okay. Yeah, as you can see, it's not the most popular event in the world, the old triathlon, but a 70.3, that's how many miles you complete, and of course, everything's American. So in a 70.3, you do the 1.9k swim, then the 90k's on the bike, and then the half marathon, the 21.1 kilometres. Now, now generally when you tell people that's what you do, there's kind of two reactions. There's the, ooh, that's kind of impressive, and then there's a, what? Why? And that's a pretty fair question. Uh, It's a pretty fair question, particularly seeing the 70.3 is a half Ironman. So what I did last weekend, it's affectionately known as the Tin Man, the Half Iron Man, because to be the full Iron Man, you have to not just do the 70.3, you have to do the 140.6, which I was lucky enough to do a few years back. So that's when you do the 3.8k swim, and I did mine uh, at Cairns, made sure I got the photo next to me, and the do not swim here, crocodiles, sharks, irrigangi, got the photo, jumped in, did the swim, then it's the 180ks on the bike, uh, and then the most bizarre feeling of all, where you come to the end of riding a bike all day, and you go, oh, marathon time, (laughs) 42.195 kilometres, which of course, it's that length because of the famous Battle of Marathona, where someone ran that distance and then dropped dead. So it's an interesting... It's an interesting thing to do, and in fact, when I, I did the, uh, the marathon, or the, the Ironman, uh, I lost four kilos and two toenails in the same day. I point that out because while people, at least some people, kind of go, ooh, when you tell them that's what they do, no one says that the next day. Anyone who sees a triathlete the next day has got the same reaction. They just shake their head. Because this week, again, when I uh, had a go uh, last uh, Sunday, 
The next day, like I aged 20 years, like you know the old man noises you make when you get out of a chair? You kind of like, oh, I was doing that the whole day. And of course, that was only the warm up to the Tuesday. It's always two days later that the real pain kicks in. And we live in a double story house. And I'm like, God, what are you doing? Like, it was one thing to try and walk up the stairs on the Tuesday, but you really couldn't say I walked down the stairs. It was really more of a controlled fall. It was kind of just the... (laughs) If you're into endurance events, you're into limping. (laughs) If you really just want to see what your legs can do, they're going to get you back. And they always win. Why do I mention that? Well, in the battle of the voices, in the battle of the spokesmen, in the battle of the prophets, it's kind of the same word... What we're going to see is how much God hates limping. So if you want to know what God doesn't like, just think triathletes, think me, think leaping, uh, limping rather, and you're in the right place for this chapter. Now, again, thank you to the Bible reading. We're just going to gloss over the first 19 verses. There is heaps in there that I would love to talk to you about one day. Uh, But because I like you, we're going to sort of jump over that for now. And we're just going to look at the end of the introduction. And the introduction just sets the scene. It's everything you need to know so the rest of the story makes sense. And you get it there in verse 19. In verse 19, we read... Uh, that Ahab is, uh, Ahaz rather, is told by Elijah, gathered together all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. The introduction ends when all of the prophets get together. They're all going to be together and they're going to be there at Mount Carmel. And Jezebel is mentioned. She's kind of there in the background, but this doesn't actually apply to her. She's not going to be in the chapter because this is just the people of God and the people they listen to. This is going to be the original voice, only they're playing for keeps. It's the battle of the voices. And so as we get into the battle of the voices, it doesn't take long before we see the problem uh, that our chapter is going to revolve around verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered together all the prophets. Again, remember, this is the battle of the voices. It's the battle of the prophets. The battle of the gods has already been decided. Gathered together all the prophets. They're all there together at Mount Carmel. And here's where we get our thematic word. Here's the theme of the chapter introduced to us here in verse 21. When Elijah says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions. That's the B for this chapter. That's the theme of this chapter. Israel, you, how long are you going to keep this up? You're limping. Your old man groans when it comes to deciding what to do. That just inability to walk properly, to do what kids can do. But all of a sudden, for you, it's just become too much. You're limping. You're staggering. And you're doing it between two different opinions. Why has Israel become a post-Yahweh nation? Why did they move on? Well, not because Yahweh isn't God. We saw that in the last chapter. It actually has to do with them. They've decided to have a bed each way. That's the problem. They've decided they want to have their cake and eat it too. They're what today we might call the Sunday saints. You know the Sunday saints? They're just one of the boys during the week. They just do whatever everybody else does, just wherever you find them in life. That's exactly what they look like. They really just fit in till Sunday. 
Then there's the car park miracle as they sort of emerge from the car and they become the Christian. The band kicks in and they're worshipping with the best of them until the car park miracle goes the other way and they drive home and Sunday's over. The Sunday saints, the chameleon Christians, you know, the people that they just blend. Wherever they are, they're at home because they're having a bed each way and they're limping. And what some people might praise as being adaptive, inclusive, progressive, maybe even relevant, Elijah just associates with being frail, being weak, being old, limping, stumbling, rudderless, spineless. That's Israel. And of course, that's a problem. If the Lord is God, says Elijah, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. What Elijah is asking the people of God to do is to choose, to choose who they're going to follow. But in this accusation that he's making against them, also he's being really, really clever. And again, we'll just do the grammatical thing for a moment because the word limp is quite clever. It is limping, it's staggering, it's stumbling whenever it's used where a person is the subject of the verb. But whenever God is the subject of the verb, it actually becomes quite a theologically profound word. See if you can spot it when I read out Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. The blood shall be for you a sign on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will before you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Did you see it there? When God is the subject of that verb, we actually call it Passover. And you can see how it's the same idea because the Passover, it's, it's kind of to swerve. And what do you do when you limp? Well, you should be going that way, but you kind of fall to the side. What Elijah is cleverly doing is not only having a go at them for their inability to walk straight, He's doing it in a way that reminds them of the profound goodness of God, where God swerved. God, if you like, there was what he should have done, judged his people for being guilty, but he swerved, he deviated, he passed over his people. And what was the Israelite response to the great Passover, the great saving, the great redemptive act of God? Well, when God passed over, their response was to limp to hedge their bets, to be spiritually spineless. And I think that's why verse 21 ends, and all the people did not answer him. You know when you ask your kids, who did that? Who dropped that? And all of a sudden, all just nothing. And the people did not answer him. What comeback have you got when God saves and your response is to swerve? Well, the battle of the spokesman is about to take place. In verse 22, Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, look, I read the Bible for a living with uni students, and one of the things we love to do is to get together because it just feels good, doesn't it? And so at the end of the year, I'm going to take some uni students down to Canberra. There's going to be about 2,500 of us. We'll get together, and the uni students love it. All of a sudden, they feel like they're the majority. They actually get to see a picture of the people of God, everyone gathering together. It just feels amazing. Like, how many people are here this weekend? 150? 200? Doesn't it feel good? Flip the table. What's one on 450 feel? 
Actually, wasn't it meant to be 850? What happened to the other 400? Nothing is accidental in the Bible. We'll come back to that. But for now, 1 to 450, that's not much of a ratio, is it? Can you feel some of the problem that's going to have to be overcome in this chapter? It's the battle of the spokesman, but it's not a fair contest because it's 450 on to 1. And so the battle gets underway. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, remember this is the battle of the spokesman, the battle of the prophets, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Now, how Aussie is this? It's a barbecue contest. Isn't that, how'd you go with the Aussie trivia? Were you able to answer a couple of them? I must admit, I did know the dual flushing one. Australia is the only nation that has a half flush. I mean, we're the only people that are going to look at that and go, I don't want to waste all of it. But anyway, putting that <laughs> to the side for a moment, this is the great Aussie moment, isn't it? This is the barbecue, and it's all about the well done, but you're not allowed to add the fire. That's the contest. And Elijah is so confident that he lets the Baalites, the prophets of Baal, goes first. Verse 26. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and here's our word, and they limped around the altar that they had made. Now, can you see what Elijah is doing here? Think barbecue, it's a cooking show. What does every single cooking show have? gives you the instructions and then it goes, and here's one I prepared earlier. It gives you the visual representation so you can look at it and then just feel disappointed later when you go, oh, mine looks nothing like that. But anyway, it's something slightly different going on here. Here's the visual representation. Elijah, how long are you going to limp back and forth between two opinions? And then what does he give them? A visual representation of the patheticness of limping. The Baal worshippers are the picture of Israel. I think that's why the other 400 aren't mentioned. Baal in particular, it's his worshippers that are on show here because we've just seen that there is no Baal. He's been conquered in the previous chapter. So how pathetic is it to actually watch his servants do their dance, 450 of them, calling out to nothing? Answer us. No voice, no one answered. And of course, it's pathetic, and so Elijah helps us see how ridiculous this visual representation of Israel actually is, and so you get the mocking in verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I reckon you could liken this scene to some country that's like controlled by this old dictator and he's got this compulsory gathering of the faithful, they're in the room and the old dictator's there but of course he soiled himself right before he was meant to give the propaganda speech and so he just doesn't turn up at the moment when he's meant to give his speech. It's, it's that kind of ridiculousness. He's off on a loo break, says Elijah, and he mocks them. And at one level... It is. It's just a bit of a harmless laugh, a bit of a jibe. Self-worship, wrong worship, is always ridiculous, but it's actually also costly. And did you notice the way that our theme, our limping, actually goes to actual limping? Verse 28, 
and they cried aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until the blood gashed out upon them. Remember what Baal is like? If you can't get him in the mood, then you've got to pay some penance. And when we say pay penance, we're saying playing for keeps. These guys are cutting themselves with lances and they're limping literally at this stage, aren't they? There's your picture of Israel. They had the God who limped for them, who passed over them in judgment, but instead they've chosen to limp towards this God. And what does this God offer? Well, he offers what every false God offers. He offers what every instance of false worship offers, pain and cost and trouble. But what did God offer when he passed over, when he limped for his people? Well, he didn't get them to bleed, did he? He bled. He eventually limped in the person of Jesus trying to carry that cross. He bled for his people so that the sins could be passed over. There's nothing funny about false worship. It always costs and it's always evil. Verse 29. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Did you notice all the contrasts in that verse? Firstly, there's the time contrast. As midday passed, the time of the offering of the oblation. What's the oblation? The oblation is actually just the burnt offering that you read about in Leviticus. So at the time when there should have been some meat burning out of worship to God, there was no meat burning because this is worship to the false God. Can you see the contrast? There's no wasted words in the Bible. But of course, there's more than that. There's the contrast of the noise. The people are raving. Ecstatic is the word. And it's actually the exact same word that's used elsewhere in the Bible, places like 1 Samuel 18 and 19, to actually describe the very real and overwhelming experience when you come into the presence of the living God and you are just overwhelmed. That's what worship can be, ecstatic, raving worship, where you are overcome with a sense of the divine. Or the same words used in Numbers 11, through the influence of a false spirit, an evil spirit that causes the people to rave. Or here, it's just nothing causes them to rave. Worship's always fun. And you can worship the true and living God or an evil spirit or nothing. And it can feel amazing. But the feeling and the reality can be quite different. And so they rave, they cut, they limp. The picture of Israel, no voice, no answer, no attention. And then it's Elijah's turn. Now, I know you know how the story ends. You know Elijah's going to get up, it's all going to work out, but just imagine being there. Pride comes before a fall, and you've just teased 450 angry people. And there's one of you, and there's a lot of them. If this doesn't end well, it's going to end badly, isn't it? You can see the problem, can't you? This is one on to 450. And what he needs to happen is spontaneous combustion. Like, that's a big ask, isn't it? So now it's Elijah's turn. How's he feeling? 
How would you be feeling? Verse 30, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. And they came to him and they repaired, or more literally in the Hebrew, they healed the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. Now, I reckon what the author is doing here is he's actually showing you there's an even bigger problem than just the one onto 450. There's an even bigger problem, and the problem is that Israel have been here before. They've been to Mount Carmel before where they erected an altar to the true and living God. But notice that altar needs to be healed, not because it's fallen into disrepute or got a little bit old, but because it's been thrown down. That symbol of the closeness we enjoy with God and most of what you do on the altar is actually just say thank you. You say thanks because of the way that God has passed over your sins. That's what altars are all about. But this one hasn't just gone into disrepute, it's been thrown down. What's that say about your relationship with God? What's the other challenge being faced here if God is going to answer? Consider for a moment my wedding ring. Now, I actually did at one point break my wedding ring in two and then lost it. Why did my wife forgive me? Well, because it was an accident. It, it just split one day and then I was out on a fishing trip just trying to get the tinny to start. My tinny takes forever to get started, so I'm pulling and eventually I flinged my hand back and the ring sort of bent and came off and she forgave me. In fact... She found the ring, repaired it, and gave it to me as a Christmas present. It was really quite sweet. Loved it. How would she respond if I broke the wedding ring because in my hurry to get it off while I was trying to chat up that lady so that I could have the one-night stand, I accidentally smashed it? Same action. How would she respond? Would she fix it and give it to me again as a Christmas present? Asking her to fix that ring, that's a little different, isn't it? The altar needs to be healed. What's the problem? The problem is the way the people treat God. They're limping. They're offending. It's not just we need a supernatural act. We actually need a supernatural act of forgiveness. But, of course, the problem's even bigger than the fact that they threw down this altar and worshipped other gods, as if that's not enough. You see that there in verse 31, another hint. Elijah took... 12 stones. Why 12? Well, we're told, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. Notice the way he's connected 12 with the name Israel. But remember, I've got to start in chapter 16. What's the number that's associated with Israel now? Not 12, but 10. Because after Solomon, in the time of Rehoboam, the nation's been ripped in two. It's now two in Judah in the south and ten with Israel in the north. Can you see all the problems that actually need to be overcome? It's not just that we need a supernatural act. We need the forgiveness of God for adultery and we need the forgiveness of God for ripping apart the people of God. It's like me having an affair and the kids suffering. That's a lot to forgive. But of course so that we can actually see some of the problem, Elijah goes out of his way to make it look even more difficult. We've got that quote in uh, verse 31 there, comes to reckless, 
directly from Genesis 35, your name shall be Israel. That's going to be the name that's going to unite the family of God. And even though you've broken it apart, we're still waiting for God to do something. And so to show you pictorially, remember, this is the example that you get to see of Israel, to show you how difficult this should be, let's just throw water everywhere. And so they saturate the wood. So now we're not just waiting for spontaneous combustion, we're waiting for spontaneous combustion of wet wood. It's like watching you know, a tree float down a river. You know how you, you see that in floods? Every now and again you just see the debris just floating down the river. Have you ever looked at that tree just floating down the river and thought, oh, I wonder if it's going to catch a light? <laughs> like, I wonder if the fire's just going to start now. Verse 35, the water ran down around the altar and it even filled the trenches. And as the water runs down, your hopes are meant to ebb away. How on earth could God respond for forgiveness? How on earth is this even possible? And we get the hint as to how it's possible in verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet of Yahweh is my God stepped forward and he prayed. How did Elijah bring on the power of God in the last chapter? He just asked, how do you be forgiven by the God of the whole earth? You just ask. Because who is it that you're praying to? Well, as we keep reading, um, Elijah's prayer is to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Have you noticed the way that the very name of God declares something about God and something about us? That is, his ongoing faithfulness from one generation to the next is now part of the very name, the very character, the very identity of God. This is the God who has promised to be on the side of people forever. And he didn't make that promise just trusting it would all work out. He made that promise knowing what the people were like. Verse 37, here's where you actually get the activity of God that is starting to be pointed to. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. It's a lot like what happened with Moses again in the Exodus period, where the whole world got to see who the true God is. Now, Remember chapter 17, remember the way it ended. That widow said to Elijah, the word of the Lord is in your mouth. That gives us confidence that when Elijah speaks, we're actually hearing from God. And this is Elijah's prayer. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, jump to the end of 37, that this people may know that you are turning their hearts back again. What is it that's actually going on here? God is about to grant repentance. He's going to turn the hearts of his limping, adulterous people back to himself. That's the heart of God. That's the character of God. That's the personality of God, the God who goes out of his way to even grant you the privilege and the right to even know that you need to say sorry in the first place. That's what this God is like. And with the heart of God and the character of God revealed, so too are the supernatural acts of God, the great demonstration of God, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell down and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, this is not the first time God's done that. This is not the first time God has actually sent fire from heaven. 
He did the same thing back in Leviticus at the inauguration of the tabernacle. He actually did the same thing again at the inauguration of the temple. Every time there's been a dedicated place of worship, the first time, the tabernacle, the temple, they laid out the offering and they said thank you to God, but it was God that got the business done. It was actually God that sent the fire to demonstrate the way that he was with the people and for the people. And as the fire falls, we're then invited to read into that. This is the reappropriation of the word of God. This is him remembering his promises. This is him forgiving his people. This is him dealing with their limping. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 39, they don't limp, they fall. They fall on their faces and they say, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's just a recognition of who God is. And the people stop limping. Actually, they stop limping and they rush. And they rush forward at the word of Elijah and they offer a sacrifice, a sacrifice that's fitting but uniquely grotesque in this chapter. Because the word that's translated slaughter in verse 40 It's probably closer to our word to cull. It's generally a word that's used of animals. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, it's used 36 times exclusively to talk about the way that animals were culled, were sacrificed in thankfulness to God. Why are the people sacrificed here? Well, notice they're not sacrificed to God, but they are sacrificed. They're culled. They're treated like animals because they are false voices that have caused the people to limp. What the people are doing here in the battle of the voices is that they are removing the voices of false worship from their midst. And after that, you see what happens after pretty much every sacrifice that you read about in the Bible. After you sacrifice, what do you do? You party. That's pretty much what every sacrifice is. There are a few that aren't, but most sacrifices in the Bible, you read Leviticus, it's a thanksgiving opportunity where you say thank you to God and then you join together with family and friends and you eat and you celebrate how good God is to you. And that's what happens here. At the word of God, they silence the voices that are leading them astray and they eat and they drink. And the chapter ends with, again, a beautiful picture. You get the prophet of God enabled through the power of God, charging off into the distance. But notice he's running in front of the king. That should be the way it is. You've got the king following the prophet of God, the spokesman of God, and the two of them are heading off to where? To Jezebel. And we're just waiting for that moment, aren't they? Is this the moment when Jezebel is going to be dealt with? Is this the moment? Well, we'll come back for that tomorrow. But for now, things are the way that they should be. How do you live in a post-Christian world? How do you follow God in a post-Yahweh world? Well, step one is just remembering there's no such thing as a post-God world. This is his world that he owns. He has conquered the forces. He's in control. What's step two? Don't limp. Don't limp. It's pathetic. God hated it then and he hates it now. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this to them. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
But because you are lukewarm, because you're a bit of both, because you're having a bed each way, because you're kind of in the middle and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you, vomit you out of my mouth. How does God feel about having a bed each way? The Sunday Christian, the chameleon Christian that just blends in? It brings a physical reaction. To illustrate that, thankfully God helped me out uh, on Sunday. I developed a blood blister under one of my toenails. It got to the point where it's kind of lifting the toenail up and my wife happened to walk in as I'm popping the blood blister and the blood's flowing out and the water flows out and I got a vini- an image or a vision of God himself as my wife looked at the blood and the water and the toenail and she's... <laughs> she was physically disgusted could not look that's God's reaction to limping having a bed each way to blending in to being progressive to taking up a better offer it makes God sick now who are the gods of our age well we're a lot like the people of Israel and the picture of the Baal prophets because they knew there was no such God as Baal. Chapter 17, Baal was defeated. So the picture we actually got to see was just people trusting in nothing. Not trusting in some other God. There is no other God. They were just trusting in themselves. And so the temptation was just to join in with these people who were wrong. Who are the gods of our age? Well, of course, there's only one God. We know that. But that's not to say there's not influences, are there? What are the influences of our world that if we follow along and just fit in and be chameleons, that it's just going to make God want to throw up? This is where actually just doing that little bit of research into the people that you live around, just getting to know the people around you is helpful. Not so that you can look down on them. Remember, the problem here is within the people of God. What makes God want to vomit is when the people of God limp and have a bed each way. So if you can get to know the culture around you, you get to know the influences around you, you get to know the neighbours to the north, like Israel, so you know what not to join in with. Now, if you read any book written by Christian social commentators at the moment, uh, a word's going to get thrown around a lot. It's a word, expressive individualism, uh, and it's a fairly sort of common way at the moment of understanding the air we breathe, just what it uh, feels like, looks like to be an Aussie at the moment. You want a couple of read, read a couple of guys on that? Carl Truman, Brian Rosner, Christopher Watkin. These are all really helpful guys just to help you understand the air that you breathe. And this thing, expressive individualism, if it is a helpful idea and way of talking about the world that we live in, the two bits go together. Expressive, you've got to express who you are. And individualism, it's more about you than us. And expressive individualism, it's kind of got these two foundational beliefs. To be yourself, you have to find yourself. It's about expressing what's inside. To be yourself, you have to find yourself and you belong to you. It's all about you expressing yourself. Now, that's even different to when I grew up. So when I grew up, we lived in this weird age now looking back where we actually thought men were made, not found. And so even the youth group I went to at the church I went to, they thought they were doing me a favour by beating the snot out of me every Friday night because that's how you make a man out of someone. 
Now, they were just as stupid because they uh, caught into the air that we breathed back then, but that's what they did. They tried to make a man out of me. Little tip, if at youth group you're ever going to get flushed, the head in the toilet, what they don't tell you is should you put your hands on the bowl to try and stop your head sort of being rammed down in there and they forcefully remove your hands away, you knock yourself out on the porcelain bowl, just let them do it. Sure, the water goes up your nose, but it's better than being knocked out. That was the stupidity of my generation where we thought if we belt the snot out of you, we're going to toughen you up and make a man out of you. It was the Mulan generation. I'll make a man out of you. Now, how dumb is that? We've moved on. Look out, world, because here I come. Marching to the beat of my own drum, it's the greatest showman. And there's good things about that, because you actually get to decide who you are. If you've got a rubbish background, you've been a victim, something like that, then you don't have to let that define you. The world out there doesn't define you. You get to define yourself. There's good things about that, but there's harmful things. Because when you try to express what's inside, it's really important whatever you feel inside, and that then becomes your way of judging how you should act. And again, Tim Keller kind of puts it like this. When he looked, uh, obviously he's not with us anymore, but when he looked at our generation, he said, identity is not realised by sublimating your desires to the good of another anymore. It's rather about asserting your desires against a society. It's all about you waging war against the people out there to show who you are. Now, why am I mentioning all of this? If all of that just went a bit over your head, just remember Stabo. Subject to a better offer. Stabo. It's a little old-fashioned, but it's still our generation. Who I am is super important, and it's all about me, and so I'm going to have allegiance to whatever it is that actually brings out who I am and how I feel, because that's super important. What would it look like to buy into that and become a limping Christian. Well, this is where it kind of gets a little bit awkward, doesn't it? Because what we need to do is we need to try and disentangle who we are as followers of Jesus from who we are as Aussies. Because the Aussie stuff is neutral, but it can go either way. But the Jesus stuff is good. What would it look like if we bought into this idea that to be yourself you've got to find yourself, and that you belong to yourself. One of the things I reckon I've noticed is that what you don't do, if you're an expressive individualism kind of person, you're just a regular Aussie, you don't do things that make you uncomfortable. Like, you don't do things that make you internally uncomfortable. Not you don't wear clothing that's a bit uncomfortable, but if if you're actually, oh, I don't know about that, then you don't do it, particularly if it just doesn't sit right with you. Have you heard at church, oh, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Have you heard the excuse of not paying the price where you're like, oh, that would make me feel a bit uncomfortable. We live in what they call the therapeutic age, where it's all about feeling good. How often do you feel bad for the gospel? Or do you just do what everybody else does and you just leave that feeling bad stuff to the side? What is it that makes you feel bad? Now, I'm not with my church, so I can admit this out loud. Do you know what makes me feel bad? Sunday school. I've been a Sunday school teacher for 15 years. I hate it. (laughs) Apologies to anyone from my church if you ever hear this. I don't like it. That's why I do it. 
because I don't want to get sucked into the therapeutic age. I, I don't look forward to it. I don't enjoy it. I would quite happily never do it again. When was the last time you were uncomfortable? Now, I've got to remember to put a smile on my face, so, you know, let's not push this too far when I do Sunday school, but can you, can you see anything that makes you feel uncomfortable? Where is it that it doesn't make you feel good and you're doing it anyway for Jesus? Or, or the other way of thinking about that, what's a desire you deny? The air we breathe is all desires are good. If it comes within, it's good, and so the idea is just to express it. When was the last time you denied a desire? That's kind of even harder, that good thing that you want that you just said no to, you've got all the freedom in the gospel, you can say yes to it, but you said no to it because you don't want to limp and you don't want to look like the people around you. So, so what's your thing? Mine's bikes. I notice bikes. I lust after bikes. I see the bike, I'm like, whoa, that is... They're expensive. Super expensive. You can drop 10 grand on just the wheels alone. They're expensive. I could buy a bike like everyone else. But will I actively buy a bike that actually is just cheaper and deny a desire? That's a tough one for me. I do struggle with that. Also, when was the last time you went out of your way to invite a critique on your life? Because if you're yours and your desires are important, then whatever you do is good. What is it that seems to drop out of our churches a lot? Inviting critique. Confession where we talk about what we do, hasn't been good. Or even worse, when was the last time you, not the people who were paid to, I mean, that's their job, but when was the last time you rebuked someone? Now, I'm not saying you have to go out of your way and be a bully about it, be mean about it, but when was the last time you actually maybe hurt someone's feelings for the gospel? Where you actually heard them giving in to a desire and you're like, oh, I don't know about that. You're not definitely telling them, all right, don't do that, that's, work, that's bad, that's simple, you're out of the kingdom. You're just going, oh, really? You sure that's a good idea? One of the things I've noticed about the coast is just how quickly we move from one church to the next and how we seem just so unashamed about it. This church wasn't doing it for me. It wasn't giving me what I was looking for, so I'm on to the next one and the next one and the next one. How are you going with limping? Because if you live in a post-Christian world, then what you cannot do is act as if the only God, the real God, isn't God. You can't have a bet each ways. And yeah, there are dangers out there, but what was the danger that God Israel? It's the danger in here. It's the danger of looking at the love and generosity and grace and cost of God to redeem you and then having a bet each way so you can get what the neighbours get. How are you going with your limping? Remember the prophets of Baal. It's pathetic and it makes God want to vomit. So let's not join in. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the way you gave us a picture of the danger that faces us. Help us not to be like the prophets of Baal. Help us not to listen to the voices around us. Help us to be really good at diagnosing when we're following and when we're limping, when we're swerving to the right, when we're joining in when we shouldn't, when we're not denying and when we're just like everyone else around us. And help us not to be that way because it's not good. It's not good for us. 
Your commands are compassion. Your personality is love and generosity and grace. Help us to run to you and not away to you and even help us help one another. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.